Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Oprah calls today's guest the marriage whisperer. Harville Hendricks is the author of New York Times bestselling book, Getting the Love You Want. It's one of my personal favorites and one of the most valuable books I've read of all time. Along with his wife, Helen LaKelly Hunt, they created Imago Relationship Therapy, a form of marriage therapy that takes relationship approach rather than an individual approach to problem solving in a marriage. However, even the marriage whisperer can have marital problems. And after years of marriage, Harville and his wife, Helen, found themselves in the same situations as their clients and their relationship was in trouble and on the verge of divorce. Using the ideas and techniques they've used with their clients on themselves, they moved from conflict to connection and forged a stronger, more intimate relationship. Today, we will discuss conflict incompatibility in marriage. Harville, thank you so much for being on my show today. It's a huge honor to have you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I told you before we got on the air that many years ago, I wound up reading your book, Getting the Love You Want. And prior to that, I had thought, oh, we're having these conflicts, and this must mean that we weren't meant to be together, and it's time to split up. And then I read your book, and I'm actually a slow reader, but I read it through the night, frantically reading it, and you gave me information that all all of a sudden gave me understanding. And I think it helped, as you would use the term crocodile, it helped Mm -hmm. calm my crocodile so that I wasn't trying to flee and going, oh, okay, I found the perfect person for me. We need to work through this. And it was hard work Uh to work through it. But now, you know, many, many years later, I have a very thriving marriage. So I personally have to thank you for that. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for sharing that with me. That's That's a lovely story. I appreciate that. So if you can talk about, because imagotherapy is what really just transformed the way I looked at relationships. So if you can give my listeners that insight before we go into talking about your latest book, Making Marriage Simple, which has great tools and specific stories to help um, the readers or my listeners understand about what they can do, how they can incorporate the practice of the theory Mm -hmm. into their lives. But if you can explain the MAGO therapy, that'd be great. Well, it's it's basically the theory of imago therapy, <clears throat> excuse me, is basically that uh, all of us uh, marry somebody in adult life who is similar to uh, the uh, our caretakers in childhood, and especially similar in that our partner in adult life will have the traits that our uh, caretakers, well, some of the traits that our caretakers had which means that the experience that we had with our caretakers will be repeated in our adult relationships. And so the issues that were not resolved in childhood show up for resolution in adulthood. And that uh, that's normal. What, what, what I think we finally came to a conclusion was that if you marry somebody similar to your caretakers, especially the negative traits of your caretakers, it doesn't mean you married the wrong person. Mm-hmm. It means that you married the right person because 
our minds seem to be set up so that we have to resolve the issues that come in, in our relationship that are uh, come from the past and are triggered by the past with a person who is similar to the people in the past with whom the issues were created. Now, <clears throat> so that's that's the theory basically of Imago and about how, how it's set up. So that person that you fall in love with is going to be the person of your dreams when you fall in love. But when the endorphins and dopamine wears off after romantic love goes down, that person's going to become the person of your nightmares. And one of the things you'll feel is that you're incompatible, totally incompatible. You're, you know, you're a night person. He's a day person. You like to travel. They like to stay at home. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you're aggressive. He's passive. And what we've learned is that that's normal. It's called the tension of the opposites or the attraction of the opposites or more formally, the law of complementarity. So the incompatibility turns out to be one of the factors in attraction and one of the necessary ingredients for an amazing, dynamic, and powerful relationship because it's the tension of the poles, the tension of different poles, different energies, holding you together in a dynamic relationship that moves you both forward into your own evolution and into a relationship that's wonderful. So that's in a nutshell what Imago theory and therapy is. Well, and I think that's a great lead into talking about conflict in marriage because yeah. don't a lot of people assume that if there's conflict, therefore this relationship may not be the right one for them and it's time to leave. Isn't that what happens? <clears throat> yes, it's, it is, it, uh, tragically, it is what happens, and it happens sometimes the morning after the wedding uh, <laughs> the, uh, or the return from the honeymoon or um, the average uh, length of time. So the people who measure these things say uh, the neuroscientist and neurochemist is about two years uh, that romantic love lasts. And that couples um, then wait about five to seven years after the after the light goes out and they go into conflict negativity to uh, start looking at their relationship and start asking or, or looking for help. You know, by that time it's often often way too late, um, although not necessarily. So, so the thing about the conflict is that. When the conflict happens, then the feeling is, oh, my God, what did I do? Who did I marry? What in the world is going on? This person, uh, you know, lied to me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, well, I was blind. And, you know, they say love is blind. Um, and what's uh, and all those things are, you know, historical uh, and normative stories about falling out of love and, and love is blind. And what we've come to understand is that conflict is indigenous to the relationship because it is a union of opposites and it's not necessary in relationships, but it begins there. And that the, that the growth is possible is that you convert the conflict into positive energy, into growth, into healing, into stretching yourself into new things. So that, that conflict, so our phrase is that conflict is growth trying to happen. And, uh, and we've finally figured out some of the growth that is trying to happen. But, but conflict doesn't mean you're with the wrong person. It paradoxically means you're with the right person to optimize your own uh, growth and potential and ultimately your own happiness. And why is that? 
Because so often we think, oh no, we want to have somebody that's easy to get along with and that um, there, there just isn't conflict. So why is it that the conflict actually spurs growth? Well, it's um, <clears throat> the, the conflict spurs growth because it, it sets up a tension. You, conflict means something needs to change. And, and what, that's <laughs> what 50% of all couples say is, yeah, it does. I need to change partners. And <laughs> so, so 50%, about a million, a few plus marriages occur. No, 2 million marriages occur each year, a million divorces. Um, so that's, um, you know, that's, and, and something does need to change. But what needs to change is not uh, your partner, not to change partners, but to change the quality of the interaction. So when you see, so conflict reveals, you know, that I'll say in mine and Helen's case, I'm a sort of linear thinker. Helen is an intuitive thinker. Helen likes to stay home. I like to travel. Uh, Helen uh, doesn't like breakfast. I have to have breakfast. So, um, and and, uh, Helen is a little more strict about children. I'm a more lenient with children. So we can polarize over those differences and say, why don't you eat breakfast? Or, you know, why don't you give the kids a break? Or we can go into conversation, and this is the the piece about that, about imago that that makes it. This is the acetaminophen. This is the the thing that makes it work. Is that you go into a conversation? We call it dialogue, and you listen and hold each other's difference, hold their points of view, and honor both of them, and then say, standing on opposite sides of this field, how can we? use our intelligence and creativity to meet in the middle with an outcome that satisfies both of our needs. It's not a compromise. It actually is a, it meets both of our needs, but it's a, a behavior we couldn't come up with by ourselves. So the, the it's couples have this enormous potential for co-creating uh, outcomes to problems that neither one could possibly arrive by themselves. So it's the conflict that drives that. So what Helen and I have do is call changing conflict into uh, co-creation, change it into uh, creative tension rather than destructive and deflective tension, change it into creative tension. Something's going on here. Something's not right. Something's wrong. We're not happy. Let's sit with our difference until we understand what it is and then move toward uh, you know, something, it's sort of like the Democrats and Republicans, except they're not doing it. They're like most couples. Mm-hmm. They, they could bring all of their enormous resources together and co-create an amazing American uh, plan, uh, or they could stay polarized. Most couples stay polarized all their lives, even if they don't get a divorce, because it's difficult to let your idea go. It's difficult to let your position go. And you have to just to learn that your partner's position is equally valid and that uh, your partner's not wrong, you're not wrong, you're not right, your partner's not right. It's kind of one of those things. It's just different. And if you hold the tension of the differences, then you move yourselves both forward. So it sounds like the conflict can be a potential catalyst to allow ourselves to go in deeper into ourselves, and which allows the healing. It's exa- exactly that. That's a great way to say it. Conflict is a catalyst for your own, your own growth. <clears throat> and, and, and I think the, the piece that's, 
that uh, if I could just throw in here is that as couples engage in this process of co-creation catalyzed by conflict, what they often discover is that the way they talk to each other, which is the dialogue process in which they don't put each other down, but use dialogue as a way of bridging so that they cross back and forth into each other's worlds, a paradox began to occur many, many years into Imago Therapy, almost after Getting was written in 1988, I began to understand that dialogue was not just a good communication tool, that dialogue itself as a conversation, structured conversation, became the solution. It wasn't a way of finding solutions. It became the solution because it changed the way partners relate to each other. And as we began to watch that, we began to understand that it is not problems we have to solve, it's how we relate to each other that we have to regulate, and that if we relate to each other without putting each other down, then we become co-creators of the outcome. That means we become partners. That means we, uh, if we're not putting each other down, we don't scare each other with negativity and anxiety. And if we're not doing that, we feel connected. And when we feel connected, we don't have any issues because connection, disconnection is the issue. And so when you get to connection, you're done. <laughs> so when I want to go back. So you said it's not the problems. It's how we relate to each other. So as I think about that, I think about the story that Helen shared in the book about you and your love for Star Trek. Yeah. And with this being an example, it was, so sh she may have thought, oh, why is my husband, there may have been shame or something of like, oh my goodness, my husband likes this, yeah. this show. And I can, I totally laugh because my husband's a Star Trek fan. And, and for a long time I was judgmental about that too. Like really why? But when she switched that judgment to curiosity of, Harville, mm -hmm. why is it that you like this? Mm -hmm. Then you were yeah. able to come out of your turtle, weren't you? And and say, oh, this is safe. I can connect with her. And then a connection was allowed. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Exactly. That that Helen um, he Helen uh, did have some curiosity, and some of it was a little little judgmental about the why I like to watch Star Trek so much. But you know, she uh, she accepted it and and kind of. Uh, endured it, she would agree that it was it was a kind of reluctant acceptance. But um, but so, but one day, you know, as we as since we do this work together and do a couple of workshops together all the time, and we talk about getting curious before you get judgmental. So she uh, she came and talked to me about about it. Uh, why I like to watch it, and I said, well, it's really two things. One is. Um, I get some private time and I get not to think about anything on this planet. I get to go into outer space. I don't have to think about couples. I don't have to think about books. I don't have to think about, you know, uh, staff. I don't have to think about budgets. I just get to be on that spaceship where there's this enormous power and adventure and, you know, stretching of the imagination. And that's, so I need it. I'm a turtle. I need that. And then secondly, science fiction is, um, is human beings thinking of infinite possibilities. It is imagination put into images. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I sometimes feel like I'm, um, I'm a, uh, an 
a, an alien. I'm, I'm re, reincarnated from the future uh, because <laughs> this is so stimulating for me. And once she got both, it was met a huge need for rest and it stimulated my curiosity. Um, she said, oh, my God, um, watch all the Star Trek you want. I'll protect you. Keep the door closed. I'll be sure nobody calls you and so forth. So once she does that, then I don't need to do it so much. Um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, one of those paradoxes It's like, oh, well, would you like to come watch it with me? No, I don't think so. Oh, well, why don't I, uh, since there were, they were all, you know, uh, recorded on whatever recording devices we had, why don't I, you know, pause this or just delay this and we take a walk. So the turtle comes out of the shell if the hailstorm doesn't invade their space. So am I making sense about just about how important that is? No, you are because the, it's so counterintuitive as a partner because you're saying, you know, I'm, it would be, well, no, you need to spend time with me. I need you to spend yep. time with me, right? And the more and yep. more the hailstorm happens, and these are terms in your book, making it, uh, marriage make, mar making marriage simple, but the more and more that hailstorm happens, the turtle's like, oh, I need to hide away. There's more and more demands. I need to hide away. Exactly. But when you give the person what it is that they want, they don't have that need of, it's it's almost like a scarcity need, isn't it? Of there's not enough of this of hiding away in Star Trek, so I need to be even ultra protective of it. Is that what happens? There's a scarcity mindset that happens. Well, it's it yeah. Well, part of it I think is is temperament that mm -hmm. the the turtle is um, the turtle may be um, it may be temperament. It may be also an adaptation. I'm, we're not sure about this, uh, but. Uh, but it seems like there's a turtle in hailstorm in every relationship. So we think it's probably also uh, has uh, some uh, strong environmental influence on it, that we become turtles in our families because that's the only way we feel safe uh, or, or it's the only way we get attention. You know, when the kid goes quiet and goes to his room, somebody comes and checks on him. Um, and uh, But if he's noisy and loud, then they say, go to your room. Um, <clears throat> so you find that being quiet gets... Uh, either some privacy or the right kind of attention. So those things we think probably are functions of adapting in childhood. And, the, and so there, there is a need potential to it, namely not enough downtime, but also not enough attention. It's a sort of, it, it, the human beings are very complex. And so, you know, sometimes something is one thing like, gee, I need more downtime. But I also need more attention. So if I go to my room, somebody will come and ask me, am I okay? Uh, and then I can say yes, and then they'll leave me alone. Um, all, all those things are going on all the time, and you often don't know. But certainly there is some sense of need uh, that both for privacy as well as for attention. So I, I want to go back because I think this is an important point for the listeners, and you talk about this in your book quite a bit, is that that curiosity instead of judgment, when people, it's more intuitive, isn't it? Or at least we are trained or we learn this manner of really judging others. Like my yeah. husband isn't doing this and oh my gosh, yeah. right? We judge and being curious is so counterintuitive because doesn't that create vulnerability inside of ourselves? Wow, doesn't it though? <laughs> 
and how dangerous can can vulnerability be? You know, like it's, you're not protected anymore. Mm-hmm. So it, it is really interesting about about judgment. Um, and what's what's interesting is it is to me is two things. One is um, uh, I, I have a little bit of background in theology and spiritual traditions, and all spiritual traditions are opposed to judgment. Um, and they try to train all their adherents to judge, not that you be not judged, but Jesus said, and I forgot what the Buddha said, but it was something very similar to Jesus and in Hinduism and in Judaism. But judgment is just not the right thing to do, that, that you need to get off that. How can you see the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? You know, that Jesus said about that. And so, so this has been a world historical a program uh, to not be judgmental, but to be accepting, loving, forgiving, and so forth. So then we get into the neurosciences, and especially into brain studies in the past um, now 15 years, we can say that we've had a science of the brain. Before that, we thought the brain was a black box, <laughs> and we didn't know what was in it, and we had no way to go inside except cut it open, and then when you cut it open, you interfered with the way it was working. So we didn't learn anything. And now we are learning something about the brain. And one of the primary things we're learning about the brain is that negativity is the default mechanism of the brain. That the brain is not designed to say, oh, that's delicious. Let's go look at it. That curiosity is not the default mechanism. That, that the default mechanism is, um, is suspicion because of the long evolutionary history uh, of human beings when we lived in jungles and climb trees or caves or, you know, all that long history or lived in villages that were unprotected, you had to, if you heard a noise and you didn't know what it was, you must not assume that it was good. You had to assume that you were going to be lunch or going to be captured or going to be robbed or something. So the brain is trained that if something happens that, that's a surprising, that you go into a defensive mode. So when your partner walks in the room and says, did you take out the garbage? <laughs> your first reaction is not, oh, uh, let's see, did I take out the garbage? Um, so, and, and so tell me um, your feeling, what's going on with your intensity? You, you, your response is, no, I didn't take it out yet. I'll take it out when I get ready. Uh, or yes, I did it. Why are you asking? Um, that that it's that's rooted in our evolutionary history so that what we have to do in order for that negation that negative response not to rupture connection and therefore create problems like you're always so jumpy and critical and reactive and so forth we have to actually go counter to our evolutionary heritage and become curious and since we don't live in the jungle anymore curiosity actually makes us safer than negativity, than the suspicion. So if somebody comes in and says so-and-so or something happens and you, and you get curious about what was going on, why did that happen, what was trying to happen here, and can it be helped, and is there a way you can be useful, then you change the whole dynamics over, over judgment. So that judgment always disconnects, always splits, always comes its own problem, whereas curiosity connects Curiosity regulates anxiety. Curiosity means I'm interested in you, interested in what you're saying. I'm interested in what you're experiencing. 
I'm interested in whether or not what you're experiencing, uh, did I contribute to that? And if so, what was it? And I'd like to know how I might do it differently in the future. You have a whole different world, and then you have a fantastic marriage. So the reason the curiosity makes us safer is that it creates a safe place for the relationship yep. to have communication or dialogue, as you say. Exactly. You know, and just the fact itself that I'm interested in you by showing curiosity means that I become safe for you. And, and, and if I become safe for you, then I'm going to be, uh, you're going to be vulnerable with me and open up to whatever's going on with you um, maybe even beyond what you knew, you may get new awarenesses. As long as I'm safe, you can be open. But if I'm not safe, you can't be open. Your brain is designed to go closed if it experiences danger, and go into the defensive mode. So my being safe, which I can do by being curious and showing interest, is, uh, is necessary for you to be vulnerable. It's a, it's a relational thing. It's not an individual capacity that can happen uh, no matter what the context is. Uh, we, we respond to context as human beings. We're relational creatures. And so consequently, how we regulate how we are with each other and what our tone is toward each other, where we stand with each other, uh, determines uh, how we're going to experience ourselves. That, that's just, you know, that's so fascinating for people because we we get into this place of you know being defensive or putting up armor but we so want to connect we have that yes. that's our human nature we want to connect and then with those people that we love so much we tend not to create these safe places like my metaphor in my home is i want my home to be a safe place but so i think of it as a nest right mm -hmm. so whether it's my kids or my husband is how can i cultivate a safe place where they want to keep coming back into the nest especially cuz i have a 13 year old right now right mm -hmm. how can i encourage her to keep coming back um yeah. but i also find that at times even though i understand this stuff intellectually <laughs> the, <laughs> yes. the crocodile's like no i'm going to react in this way whether and a lot of times it has for me it's not so much fear based it's just i it's the overwhelm of life, right? The pressures. I've got a radio show to get done. I have this work to do. I don't have that much time to sit there and dialogue and creating that space. So I'm looking at how do I can create more space. So instead of being like, we have to get this done, I can be able to have enough time to have a dialogue. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, and I know that you shared your story in your marriage with Helen in the book. And m my question was, wow, you know, they're, they're showing that even though they're, they're the marriage experts, they too had troubles. And I always was wondering, why were you so willing to be so um, open about your own relationship? Well, <clears throat> I think um, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about that. You know, as, a, as clinicians, <clears throat> again, in, the, in psychoanalytic, psychodynamic training background, the question of, of um, how much does a does the therapist share with the client mm -hmm. uh, a uh, almost legal and certainly an ethical um, uh, ethical question in that particular paradigm? Um, I think over the years, uh, I have learned as a therapist that as long as I don't take over and make the therapy session about me, that my self-disclosure 
uh, helps the client uh, normalize uh, what they're experiencing. <clears throat> so, and my vulnerability, uh, it, it's again, it's, it's like a relationship. If I'm, if I'm vulnerable and open, then uh, other people have to, can relax their defenses. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it is that self-disclosure uh, turns out to be measured self-disclosure. Uh, turns out to be a positive for um, for people in therapy. So when we uh, when we uh, go public, uh, like in books and in uh, lectures and workshops, uh, where we have um, you know whatever that size of the of the audience is, we began to experiment with um, sharing our story. And especially the story that, because um, it, it was a public story. I mean, we were on the, on the, the, a very large stage at the time because of the Oprah show. Mm-hmm. And we also had a, an organization that had a worldwide constituency and had conferences every year and to which we went. And we were the ones who, you know, did the keynotes and all that. And one year we go and we have to say to them, you know, we have come to the conclusion that we cannot do the keynote this year because uh, our marriage is on the rocks. And so what we need is to let you know that with, we, we have no integrity if we talk about how to be married, uh, since clearly we don't know. And yet we do know because we wrote about it and millions of people's marriages are better. So mm-hmm. what we need to do is take time out and heal. And the Imago community uh, embraced us without a single judgment. We, we don't, we don't have a single, anybody saying you hypocrites. Uh, they all said, you know, they got around us and held us and, and, uh, prayed for us and, and uh, all kinds of things and said, you all take your time. We will run this organization. And so nobody decredentialed Imago nor us. Um, <clears throat> so that was, you know, so that gave us then about a two-year period to heal in which we uh, learned about zero negativity and how to deal with that, which we then put into our lives and healed. And we went back then. Oprah had said, because uh, the, the year that uh, we were on the rocks, Oprah called me and said, I want you to come on my show on a regular basis. Oprah. <laughs> 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 I, I can't do that. And she said, why not? You're turning me down? I said, well, why not is that Helen and I are discussing divorce. And she said, oh, damn. She said, well, I'm so sorry. But when you work it out, that's interesting what she said. When you work it out, call me. So two years later, uh, I called her and said, you know, we are we just had our uh, recommit. We're going to have a recommitment, big public remarriage. Want you to come? She, of course, declined. Um, but she then called me back shortly and said, "Okay, I want you back on the show." And on the show, <laughs> Oprah said, "This man and his wife have been, um, you know, through the valley of the shadow of death and come out of it." And and she told the world. I mean, I. She said, can I tell people? And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, be brief. So she told the world <laughs> how incredibly integrous we were. So, so now we were, you know, back on, not only back in the, 
in the public limelight, but we were vindicated. I mean, we were um, uh, we, we were given high marks, uh, sort of eulogized in some ways. So what we found was that our vulnerability was beneficial, even to Oprah, because she could then talk about her struggle with Stedman. Um, and so then we started saying it in workshops. And then uh, finally, uh, Helen and I said, you know, in a measured way, I mean, we don't want to become, you know, um, what is it, exhibitionistic about this. But it's helpful for couples to know, and they tell us over and over again, knowing that you all had to struggle makes our struggle normal. Mm-hmm. And we say, yeah, and if we could fix it, you can fix yours, because probably nobody had a worse marriage than we did. Because uh, our childhoods were horrible, and you know, and and those childhoods were colliding. Uh, and even though we cognitively knew what was going on, and we knew what had to be done, we didn't do it. And we didn't do it because we were so caught up in the negativity that we actually couldn't pull out of that. And then finally, one day, we decided, you know. Uh, there's a variety of ways we got to this insight. Negativity is the problem here. Just the way we treat each other. This, I mean, our problems are not going to go away, but the way we treat each other can go away. And so let's move negativity out. Let's go cold turkey. Let's uh, let's end this sucker today. And um, we didn't have much to talk about for about three months, but at least <laughs> the, the negativity was gone. And then we learned we had to, we had to, you know, we, that was like pulling the weeds out of the garden. Um, then we discovered we had to do something else. We had to plant seed and put new seed, fertilizer, water, and pay attention. And that was appreciations and caring behaviors and uh, creating positive energy together. And so, so in a while, it all worked like it's supposed to work. But it, you know, it doesn't work till you work it. And uh, but that's so. That's the reason why we go are willing to talk about it in public uh, because it turns out that our being visible, being being uh, vulnerable when since we're visible becomes itself a therapeutic agent for people. So if it works that way and we don't overdo it and you know um, then then we think it's okay and uh, and we are and we're comfortable with it. And surprisingly, nobody's ever come to us and say, anything negative. <laughs> no, if, if anybody's feeling negative, they sure don't come up and say, you all ought to keep this good stuff quiet. Uh, or, or why are you, why are you dangling this in public? Uh, nobody has ever said that. All the responses are, thank you. Um, and cause now you're real, this project and process is real. And we, and, uh, and since what you teach work for you, um, we think it'll work for us and we're going to get to work on it. So that's a long answer to it, but that's the reason. Well, so one of the reasons I started this show almost seven years ago was I was trying to figure out how some people, why some people were successful and others weren't. I mean, that's kind of the basic gist. And then one of the things, and it used to be in the intro of the show, but it's now in the outro because it's kind of long, but I think it's an important message that I want my listeners to know is that in these almost seven years of doing these shows is that everybody goes through struggle. Everybody falls mm-hmm. down and they get back up, right? And that's it. That sounds like what you and Helen ha- happened in your marriage. So even though you understand this work and even though you'd gotten to a certain point in your marriage, 
there was mm-hmm. there was still pain, which was a catalyst mm-hmm. that created it sounds like even a deeper marriage at this point. Yeah, yeah, and and it, that's really true. So Helen and I are partners in the co-creation of Imago, and we were partners in the co-creation of our difficulties and partners in the co-creation. So it turns out that the whole thing is a relational thing. Helen actually came up with the zero negativity idea um, and, and said, you know, we, we just need, we just need to do that. Um, that, uh, and, and also I, I give her credit. She also came up with the idea that maybe, maybe it's okay if we talk about this in, in public and it's okay with me. Is it okay with you? So, uh, yes, I think that, that, that what, what our story is, is the human story, mm-hmm. you know, of open desire and brokenness and repair. And, um, and that that's, um, when you, when you go through the brokenness, instead of getting lost in it, uh, into repair and healing, then you come out, uh, certainly wiser, hopefully at a higher level of, um, emotional and, uh, and neural integration. Don, Dan Siegel talks about uh, brain integration, that certain things have to come together in the brain for it to work well. And one of the things that have to come together is thinking and feeling. And so Helen and I are both uh, thinkers um, and, uh, and both sort of, even though she's more of a feeler than I am, we both lead off with thinking, but then she will go to feelings and I'll go to logic. But, um, but when you bring the two together into one relationship, both brains get integrated, and the more you get integrated, the more less reactive you are, and therefore the less uh, problems you create, the less anxiety, the more safety you have, the better the connection. And, and, and that leads to a lot of peace, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that's been the remarkable discovery, is, um, is that... Um, that once you can sustain the felt sense of connection, you know, we're connected whether we know it or not. We, we belong to the universe and we're all interconnected in ways uh, beyond our even understanding. Um, but it's clearly science now and spiritual traditions and quantum physics and all are in agreement that connection describes universe and therefore describes us. So we're connected, but, but we don't always feel connected. We feel isolated, alone, uh, alienated, you know, excluded or whatever. And those are just ruptures of connection. But when you feel connected, there's a fascinating thing that Helen and I came up with, which is we now uh, have essentially no desires. You know, there's nothing, nothing we want. Um, as, as a deficit, it's like desire must be, desire must be born in the rupture. And what we really want is the connection, the repair of the rupture and connection. When you get that, then you may have needs, you know, like you have to go to the bathroom or you want some food and you may have some preferences, like you'd rather have shrimp tonight than salmon, but there's no driving desire, no empty hole. You have to keep putting stuff in like new cars, new houses, or new experiences, or more sex, or better clothes. None of that has any value to us. Um, 
and and what we love now is is what we do, which is, um, and it's not even we don't even have to do it anymore. It's like it has its own momentum. There was time when my career was a driving force, and it's not anymore. It's more like it pulls me rather than I have to push it. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's a whole new way to live, to live without desire and to live in peace, and to therefore be available for whatever comes along. Um, it's just a new way. It's um, Some people talk about enlightenment. Some people talk about higher consciousness. I don't know about all those terms. But but I think that it's what, what love is, uh, that once you get to love, then, you know, connection gets sustained. And that's it. You know, you've had dinner. <laughs> you know? <laughs> In your book, Making Marriage Simple, you have kind of the the different phases of love with the power struggle. So first, it's romantic love. Yeah. And can you explain that a bit? Yeah. Well, yeah. Romantic love is is what happens when you you know see the eyes across the crowded room and you move to that person like a moth to the flame, and that feeling of gosh familiarity seems like I've known you and uh, got to be with you, and then you begin to ruminate about them and you just feel you know that terrible joy that you have it and fear that you might lose it um and it produces endorphins in the bloodstream and then um then dopamine and dopamine knocks out your prefrontal cortex so you actually don't know what you're doing and who this person is so romantic love is that is that and we call it a selection process um, which is the door now to marriage and has been since uh, the 18th century. Prior to that, your parents were your door to marriage, but then in the 18th century, you could pick your own partner with the democratic revolution. So romantic love is a door to marriage, and that's I, we think it's nature's trick uh, to get you bonded uh, with the person uh, who appears of your dreams uh, so that when you... Now, get bonded, uh, nature will pull away the dopamine, and you'll see this person of your nightmares. But it turns out that that's the person that you need uh, if, in order for your, own, for your own evolution. So that leads to the power struggle. The power struggle is the second stage in marriage. It's normal. It's natural. As romantic love is designed as a transient phenomenon, supposed to go away because it serves its purpose, of getting two people together who are incompatible and then pulls the, pulls the plug and they see what the work is they have to do. That's the power struggle. And if they see it as work they have to do, then it becomes a great creative marriage of partnership. But if they see it as a problem they have to solve, you know, by getting rid of each other or by spending years and years in therapy without any improvement or by going to meditation retreats, you know, doing whatever you can do to assuage the pain, uh, then, uh, then, then the, the, um, the reality of that tension uh, is uh, decimating. But if you see it as, okay, that's what we have to do. I have this childhood wound that keeps showing up every time you're late and feeling abandoned. And so we have to talk about that and figure out how to regulate my anxiety and your anxiety and what to do so that we don't trigger that anxiety. Because ultimately, the neural pathways that were created in childhood are, are not going to go away. You have to build new neural pathways. You have to build new bridges. And what it turns out to be is you have to build a relationship that has features in it 
that don't trigger your implicit and explicit childhood memories. And those features are fundamentally safety. You have to have a safe relationship. And if you have safety, then you can feel the connection that you are and the joy that comes with it. So um, that's sort of the sort of the stages, romantic love, power struggle, and then resolution. And uh, some resolutions are divorce, others are parallel marriages, others are going to fight till death. We call those the hot marriages. But the ultimate resolution is to become a partners in the project of creating a relationship in which you're safe, in which you can feel connected and joyful. Wow. I love that. And now, when as you were talking and you were talking about your marriage and the troubles that it went through, I was kind of envisioning, Harvell, that you had romantic you know, romantic love, obviously, that brought you together. Then there was the power struggle, and there was a resolution. There was the real love, right? Yeah. And then it yeah. kind of, then there was a catalyst of more pain as it brought you into the deeper. So would it be kind of like a spiral as we yes. go through this? Very much a spiral. Yeah. Um, and and that's a good that's a good image to bring in because I'm a linear thinker and often lay out things, you know, on a grid. Uh, but it's actually a circle back and around and up that you circle back through everything several times until you don't. And at some point you just don't, um, the, 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 it ultimately turns into something that's uh, not linear or circular, but just simply, I don't know what you, what image that would be, but you're not, uh, uh Helen and I have, we, we've often dealt with this about what about journey versus destination? Mm. And I think as long as we were on the journey, we always thought, well, that's what you have, is you're always on the path. And then what we found was that once we went to zero negativity and we monitored that so that we felt reliably safe, we felt connected all the time and there wasn't anything else to do except monitor negativity so that we would always feel safe and therefore experience connection. So there is a kind of, we think, destination. And the destination is, is we could call it real love. It's sustainable connection. It's reliable, reliable experience of joyful aliveness. And all, and the gate, the door to that is the door of safety and danger. If it's safe, you get all that. If it's dangerous, you don't get any of that. So what came to my mind, because I think in pictures, what came to uh -huh. my mind is like a home. You finally get that home that you know you want wanted, and you're yeah. in your home, and you don't have plans to move. But there's constant maintenance, right? The lawn will need to be mowed, the dishes yeah. need to be put away. So you're in that constant. <laughs> you're in the destination. I'm in my home that yeah. I'll probably be in. You know, the, the idea was to be in this home till my husband died. So right. that, hopefully that'll be a really long time. But so we're not looking at other homes. But there's right. maintenance that goes Very on. Very good. Very good. That's great. Yes. It's, uh, you have to maintain it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise the grass and the dandelions will grow. Um, and, or, or the wheel will squeak. But you have to maintain it. But right, you're not moving to another home or trying to find a bigger home or a better home. You're keeping this home wonderful. Mm -hmm. it's, I think the Christian tradition... Uh, it's it's called heaven, um, except it's heaven seems to be where you don't have to maintain anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think as long as we're in heaven on earth, 
you still have to, you know, feed the dogs and mow the lawn uh, and carry out the trash. Uh, and that that's a constant, but it's not always working on your relationship. Uh, it's now being in your relationship and keeping it working, keeping it tuned. Like Helen and I, every night, uh, we, we have a little bedtime ritual in which we share three appreciations of each other every day. And you can't repeat one you used yesterday. Um, and so just sharing those appreciations uh, that I have to, it means I have to notice Helen, you know, like, okay, let me see. I'm watching her and I have to remember uh, my interactions with her during the day and say, oh, yeah, that was the time when you, oh, you came and you, you took my hand and smiled at me. Uh, but, but if we didn't have the ritual, you know, I wouldn't have registered that. But you, you may have registered it, but didn't put it into words. So that's the kind of maintenance. And we, we read together uh, each night so that there's a time of sharing something that we both enjoy. Right now we're reading Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain, which is interesting. It's about a guy who never got married. Uh, but, but he was a quite, quite relational and quite an amazing man. And so we do that. And if there is something we need to talk about, we have practiced now not talking about it at night before bed. Um, but we try to do that at some other time because the bedroom it's better to have the bedroom, uh, kind of a place of being with. And if there's a problem that we have to solve, uh, go to one of our offices and do that. <laughs> well, and that, so that creates, so you know, that when you go to bed at night, that's a safe place, not something's yeah. going to be dropped on you that you have to deal with when you are already mentally winding down your day. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, sometimes then gosh, now I'm upset. Um, and, and, and we're going to work it through, but now my brain starts ruminating and, um, I don't want, we don't want that. We want, we want to, to experience those moments. And interestingly enough, the more we keep ourselves maintained in those moments, the fewer problems we have to talk about. Uh, and if they are problems, it's about, well, what are we going to do about this project? Or what about this staff person uh, when we need somebody to hire? Or when are we going to go see a daughter? Um, rather than anything going on between us. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so peaceful that you can reliably predict that you're now hanging out together, being with each other, standing beside each other. We call it our daughter's writing her doctoral dissertation on solidarity. And we've finally understood what that means. And, and we're saying that's what a great marriage is. When you stand in solidarity with each other, I'm on your side, I'm with you. Uh, I'm behind you. I'm, you know, I'm for you. That's very different from, and, and we call that, um, we call that a new way of therapy as well. So therapy has been based on what we know about each other and what we know about ourselves, what we know about our history. And there's some question about whether that sort of epistemological way of therapy really heals. But we do know that what we consider to be more foundational or ontological, like connection is our being, and we sustain our awareness of that connection, then we stay in this place of joy. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, it, after a while it becomes normative and you feel, well, this is not so unusual. This feels like life. This feels like what things should be when they are just right. Uh, and then anything else is, 
uh, knocks you out of this natural, normal uh, state. Is that what you mean by instead of fixing each other, it's about healing the space between two people? Exactly that. Exactly. You are so good. That's exactly that. Yes. The space between Helen brought the space between concept to our conversation from um, Martin Buber's uh, the I Thou relationship, the little book he wrote in the 50s. The space between, where he said, all life is meeting. And, and that was very different from life is about analysis or problem solving or progress. All life is meeting, and the I meets the thou in the space between. And the space between, Buber said, is where God shows up in the space between. And so we sort of take that concept and say, love shows up in the space between. That's where we keep the space between sacred. We keep it empty of negativity so that that's our relational space. And when we're there, it's sacred. Uh, Not religious, it's sacred, meaning it's not defiled by negativity. Therefore, it's safe, and we can be ourselves there with each other. I love that. And being ourselves, that's who we want to be, right? We don't want to be the the things that we're told we're supposed to be. That's not very relaxing. Most of us are defended selves, and seldom ever do you get to just be you and be okay. Mm -hmm. You you can be you, and sometimes they put you in jail. But but to be you and to be okay. So Harville, as we wrap up, I like to end the show in a couple of takeaways. So there was a lot of stuff that we talked about today and we can, you can just restate something that you said earlier, but what would be two takeaways for my listeners wanting to improve their marriage? First takeaway is zero negativity commitment. Um, Negativity and connection don't go together. Negativity and intimacy don't go together. Negativity and closeness don't go together. You gotta go zero negative, meaning ending all put downs. Anything that says to your partner, you're not okay. And learn how to deal with issues without putting each other down. So zero negativity. And the second takeaway is you have to learn how to have a conversation that's safe. And that conversation is uh, that we use is the dialogue process, which is a three-step process that's in making marriage simple, and it's also in getting a love you want. So people can go there and get that. But you have to learn how to talk so that the talking doesn't put each other down. The talking becomes a way of being with that connects. So zero negativity uh, removes uh, 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 removes, uh, anxiety means the relationship is safe, and then connection can occur. And dialogue is the technology by which all of that happens. So those two things. Learn how to talk and get rid of the crap. (laughs) There you go. Well, listeners, I just invite you to consider, if that was possible for Helen and Harville, they're the marriage whispers coming up with all this, and they've gone through their own transformation with their own power struggle. If that is possible for them to get to this point of peace, what is possible for you? Harvell, thank you for being a guest today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you. I'm honored and delighted to talk with you, and I wish you well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you, so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe 
there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself if that is possible for them. What is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.